Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Roger Schiffman. Roger is the co-founder and director of Fairways for Freedom, an organization that helps bring healing to wounded veterans through golf. Roger was the managing editor of Golf Digest from 1984 to 2013 and continues to write articles for the magazine as a contributing editor, working mostly with legendary player Jack Nicklaus and Hall of Fame teachers Jim McLean, Rick Smith, Chuck Cook, and Martin Hall. Roger is the author of six books, including A Golden 18 with Jack Nicklaus and Make Your Next Shot Your Best Shot with Bob Rotella. Well, thanks for joining us today, Roger. We're uh, Phil and I are very excited to talk about golf and writing and a bunch of fun topics with you. So let me ask you this first question. Which came first, your love of writing or your love of golf? I would have to say my love of golf. Uh, as soon as Little League Baseball was over, when I was about 12 years old, I discovered golf. Um, I grew up playing on a little nine-hole course in Tallahassee, Florida. My dad was a professor at FSU. And... Uh, and I used to hang out with the, um, the FSU golf team all the time. I caddied for Hubert Green and shag balls for guys like that. Um, David Duvall's father, Bobby Duvall, and uh, Jimmy Duvall, David's uncle, they all went to Florida State. So I hung out with those guys. They were about eight or 10 years older than I was. But um, it was a great learning experience. And my dad got a, a membership I'll never forget, to a year-long membership, family membership for $120. So just could play unlimited golf is because he was on the faculty. And um, it, it, was a great, it was a great thing. Um, I, got, I got bit by the golf bug, and uh, just once that happened, I never touched a baseball bat again, even though modestly I must say I was the batting champion in Little League in Tallahassee that, that year, and I was recruited by um, the Babe Ruth coach to come play because I was a catcher and he was looking for catchers and he came to my dad's house to our house and and uh, said to my dad I really want Roger to come play for me and I looked at my dad and I said dad I'm really sorry but I I don't want to play baseball anymore I want to play golf (laughs) so I think I disappointed them a little bit but as it turned out it was it was a good move for me because golf as you know is a lifetime sport and um, baseball is a lot more fleeting and, uh, and then when I got into to high school, um, it was right around the time that all the President's Men movie came out. And uh, I got hooked on investigative reporting for some reason. It just really in, intrigued me. So I had a, uh, 
uh, a high school guidance counselor, and, and she said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to go to journalism school. And she said, well, you have to go to University of Missouri. And I said, okay. And back then, I mean, you know, there was no questions asked. So I applied. I applied to University of Florida as well. FSU did not have a journalism school. And I think I applied to the University of North Carolina too. But Missouri accepted me. And I just flew out to Columbia, Missouri, sight unseen, never saw the campus, never did a, you know, a, I mean, t today, I mean, our daughter, she's looked at 25 different, and uh, once I got into journalism school, I realized I couldn't play on the golf team anymore because all the classes were in, in the afternoon, so I couldn't practice. So I had to make a decision. I said, well, I think I'm going to be a better journalist than a golfer. So I ended up doing that. And my first job out of college, I was very fortunate. I hooked up with Golf Journal Magazine, which is the USGA's publication. And uh, that was out of Philadelphia and, um, or Radnor, Pennsylvania. So it's a company called Chilton, and they were publishing that, that, that magazine and another magazine called Tennis USA. So I quickly became a tennis player as well, and I worked for both magazines at the same time. And it was great. I got to cover the, uh, the first U.S. Open at Flushing Meadows and uh, watch Jimmy Connors win that. And and uh, did that for two years and, and worked uh, at Golf Journal. I went to you know a lot of USGA events, the US Open at Southern Hills and places like that. And uh, two years later, I was able to hook up with Golf Digest and stayed there for 35 years. Oh, I love so that. that's, that's my career in a nutshell. But definitely uh, golf came first and writing came second, but it's great to be able to combine the two. Did you, uh, I love that. It's uh, similar for me with sports psychology, um, you know, love of psychology and love of sport, obviously, and being able to bridge the two mm -hmm. as a career. Um, tell us a little bit more about maybe some of your heroes growing up then in terms of whether baseball and or golf, and then we'll get a little bit more into your, uh, your books and working at Golf Digest and all sure. those fun things. Well, the Tallahassee Open was the big event in golf when I was a kid growing up. And it was always played opposite um, the Tournament of Champions. So it was a secondary tour event. But what it meant was there were no winners playing in the Tallahassee <laughs> Open, or at least no winners from the previous year. And I'll never forget, uh, Lee, it was, uh, Lee Trevino had won the U.S. Open in 1968 at Oak Hill. And he had not won for two or three years in 1971. So he comes into Tallahassee to play in the Tallahassee Open. He wasn't eligible to play the Tournament of Champions. So my dad said, we got to go out and watch Trevino. He's, he's a great player. So we went out the final round and Trevino was like kind of around the lead or whatever. And I'll never forget the 15th hole, we were standing behind the green and he was in the middle of the fairway and he sculled his, his uh, approach. It was like a nine iron or something. It was like going eight feet in the air. It hits the flag stick dead center and drops eight feet from the hole. He makes the putt for birdie. Birdie's like the 17th hole. And then he makes about a 30 footer for the U.S. Open that year. And then he won the British Open and he won the Canadian Open all in a, in a very short amount of time. And it really and he even says he, he'll go back and say it wasn't if it weren't because of that Tallahassee Open. I don't know if I'd ever become a a big champion like like he was. So um, that really was an indelible um, image in my mind. And it showed me that 
it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> or, or sometimes, you know, the people who are really good are, are lucky and vice versa. And you just never know what can happen and how things can change. If he hadn't hit the flagstick on that on that shot, it would have been over the green. He'd have probably made double bogey. He wouldn't have won the tournament. So you just never know. That was, that was a lot of fun. So that's one image that I have growing up in Tallahassee. Um, I caddied, I shagged balls for Hubert Green and caddied for him. And when I first came to Golf Digest, I went to the Hartford Open and Hubert was there. And, you know, Hubert was an irascible guy. He was not very friendly. And, and I was a naive kid. I was like 25 years old. And I went up to him on the practice range. I said, Hubert, you know, I, you probably don't remember me. I'm Roger Schiffman. You know, I used to caddy for you when you were at Florida State. And he kind of looked at me and said, what's your name again? And I said, Roger Schiffman. He said, who are you with? And I said, Golf Digest. And I was really proud of it, you know. And he said, well, you can tell your editor that I'm no hick from Birmingham and I'm never going to do anything for Golf Digest again. And if I, if you caddied for me at Florida State, I'd probably stiffed you, and I'd stiff you again. <laughs> wow! Where? Wow! What is it's this? It's kind of like, kind of like Michael Jordan got to the point after Sports Illustrated did that hack job on his, you know, his baseball career. Yeah. So I didn't know what was going on. So I went back to the office the next day, and I said, told the editor, "You can't believe what happened." He said, oh, yeah, that's because we ran this article last year about Hubert Green. And I looked it up, and the headline was Hubie Hee Haw. And the whole article was about how, you know, he comes from, you know, the this, this southern town in Alabama, and he's kind of a, you know, a hick, but yet he's playing well on the tour. Well, he, he you know, he was not happy about that. In fact, he even told me, he says, I'm no hick from Alabama. My father was a doctor and." Birmingham, and how can you write that? And I'll never do anything for Golf Digest again. <laughs> <laughs> Tough guy. Yeah. So that's, you know, these are the kind of things you just never know. You, you, you're kind of naive when you get started in the business and you you grow pretty, um, pretty tough pretty quickly because, you know, these things happen. Was that um, particular editor at the time, was, was uh, he a, a good mentor to you or were there other yes, mentors in the business? What no, he you... really was. Yeah, Nick Seitz. Nick Seitz, who was a legend in sports writing, won tons of awards. He was our editorial director at the time, and he hired me. And he hired me, you know, taking a chance on me because I was just a kid. And um, and they made me the um, an assistant managing editor, created a, a job just for, for me to join the staff at the time. This is back in 1979. And I became the managing editor about five years later when the managing editor retired. And uh, and that was my career, basically. I was either a managing editor or executive editor for the next three decades. So. Oh, absolutely. What, what were a couple of things that he taught you, either about the business or about life or about both? Um, Nick was a great writer in addition to being a, a really great editor. But I think, um, you know, succinctness, he really knew how to write things quickly, get to the point, you know, don't belabor it, um, which is really true today in today's writing. But even then, you know, I mean, you, you, I think he taught me that you need to have a lot of research, a lot of facts, make sure you know what you're talking about, and then cut it down to really the salient points. 
And he also was um, really big on what he called um, uh, how-to journalism, service journalism. Um, we were always, he was always pushing us to write articles that the average golfer could relate to and could, could get something out of. You know, we always had to make sure we had um, articles on how to take care of your equipment or your shoes or your, you know, whatever it is, how to, how to keep your locker in shape, things that you would think are kind of basic, but, you know, that's what readers really kind of wanted, you know, so, and then instruction and every headline on the cover had to have a, had to be preceded by how to, how to do this, how to do that. No, I love that. I, I, I even like, um, you know, with a, a good book editor I had for, um, for my Truman book, Whistlestop, mm -hmm. where he was like, this has to involve the words Midwest gumption with regard to Harry Truman. And it has to be a how, how, you know, blah, 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 blah. And a bit of Midwest gumption helped Harry Truman win the presidency in 1948. But he, he, every, basically every book this guy published as an editor over 45 years plus had a how as the subhead in a book title. Well, it's interesting because in working with, with Dr. Bob Rotella and, and my wife is a sports psychologist as well, mm. Dr. Patricia Donnelly. In fact, they have the same degree from UConn with the same professor. Um, but uh, Bob's always talking about forget the promise. You know, it's always don't, you don't worry, think about the outcome. You only want to think about the process. And Jim, I know you're very, you know, I'm sure you preach that as well. But we didn't do that at Golf Digest. We were all about the outcome. Every cover story was always, what's the promise? What's the promise, you know? And, and, and uh, so we were really um, probably at odds with most sports psychologists. When you're trying to sell magazine covers or magazines with great cover lines, you're not selling the process. You're selling the process, the promise. We had a, an old editor who once said, um, says, we're not selling lipstick, we're selling hope. And that was a, a line, you know, that advertisers always used. It's um, it's it's all about the promise. So, so it's kind of um, what people these days would call it was uh, aspirational. Then you were selling yes. an an aspiration to be better in some way or to fix the problem. Exactly. Exactly. Very interesting. Now, back in those days, you know, for younger writers. Um, they're used to having to churn out copy every day, sometimes every hour. And it seems to be about, you know, I hate the word content. I'm not sure if you hate it as much. Hopefully you do for the same reasons, because to me, content is all about eyeballs on page because advertising dollars are where it's at now. It's about clicks. And sometimes it's about upselling. Oh, well, what were the click throughs to buy a subscription or this mm -hmm. and that? Whereas to me, storytelling is something very different and is a kind of a nobler thing than in quotes content or content writing what when i say storytelling what comes to mind to you that's a, that's a great question um in a lot of the books that i've done or not a lot but most of them i always try to tell stories get some good anecdotes it's so much more interesting i did a book with jack nicholas about five years ago called the golden 18 and it's it's a profile of 18 of the of the elite golf clubs that he has designed and the book is not just about the the golf designs that the courses but it's also what it's like to be a member of the clubs that they're connected mm -hmm. to so each time especially to get the chapter started so it's, i wrote eight uh, four thousand words times 18. it's a lot of work i know um, i know it well <laughs> yeah i'm sure <laughs> we know you it do. well <laughs> yeah 
And I was interviewing, you know, I visited, I crossed country, across the country four times. Um, they were all in the United States, fortunately. Um, and, and I interviewed, you know, the superintendents and the director of golf and the, the uh, chef and the locker room attendants and the, and members all to try to give readers a feel of what it's like to be a member of that club. But inevitably, it would come back to the first two or three paragraphs. I'd have to try to come up with some kind of an anecdote about the club um, to make it interesting, because this is pretty boring stuff, really. Um, you know, OK, so they have this and this and this on the menu, right? Um, the locker room has 17 beautiful trophies in the trophy case. So, you know, it's really if you're a member, you're interested in that. But for other people, it's not very interesting. So I was. I really tried and, and I think for the most part was somewhat successful of finding some interesting anecdotes about each of the clubs. Um, for example, one is is a club called Red Ledges out in Utah. And, and um, it turns out that the founder, um, Tony Burns is his name, he was the uh, CEO of Writer Systems for 20 years and they were based in Miami. And so they they sponsor the Doral Rider Open, and inevitably, lo and behold, in the pro am, Tony Burns always was able to draw Jack Nicholas for his pro in the pro am, and um, so then when Tony retired, um, he had bought a bunch of land in Utah, and he decided to ask Jack to design the course. So that's how come that book that club got into the book. Well, when I went and started to interview Tony, and I, I went to Miami and interviewed him in his office there, he started telling me some really interesting things. Turns out he he was from Mesquite, um, Mesquite, Nevada, which is just a little truck stop town. And uh, I've actually been there because that's where Golf Digest conducted its hot list testing for, for equipment for a few years. There's nothing there except a few golf courses and, a, and some nice driving ranges and, and, it's, and casinos. But anyway, um, he grew up in Mesquite, and at the time there was nothing there but a truck stop. So he ended up going to something called um, Dixie College, I think it was, on a $50 a semester baseball scholarship. And then he went from there to um, to Stanford University, well, to um, Brigham Young, got his degree there, went to Stanford, got an MBA there, ended up working for Exxon for a number of years, and then was recruited to become the CEO of Rider Systems. And he took Rider Systems from a $5 million company to a $20 billion company. I mean, it was, you talk about a rags to riches success story. So that was really fascinating. And he even said, to me, he said, if it weren't for that $50 a semester baseball scholarship, I'd still be pumping gas at that truck stop in Mesquite, Nevada. So, you know, if you can find a story like that, and that made the whole, you know, the beginning of the chapter, you know, I was able to write about that. And, and he married a rodeo queen who, who was from that area of um, Utah. And he kept, instead of getting a, when he got bonuses every year, instead of buying more stock or whatever, he bought land and he kept buying contiguous acreage there in in, um, in Utah 
in Heber City, it's a town, and he bought all this land, it's all up the mountainside, and now it's this multi-million dollar housing development with a beautiful Jack Nicklaus golf course and a 12-hole golf park that Jack designed for him. It's a phenomenal place. So that's just one example. No, and I think that's where the gold is, right? Um, like when I was working on my Churchill book, I managed to find the grandson of the college president at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, who brought Churchill mm -hmm. there to give his what's now known as his Iron Curtain speech. Mm -hmm. And he gave me access to all of his grandparents' papers that no one had ever seen, um, a scrapbook with letters to, to family members about how little details about, you know, oh, I couldn't believe how soft Winston's hands were almost like a baby when he clasped my hand in his big hands. And uh, to a lot of people that that's like, oh, that's just, you know, trite little details. But to folks like us, that's where the gold is, right? Well, yeah, the details that that's you. The gold is in the details. That's, that's another thing that Nick Seitz taught me is that you really need to to focus on details. That's what makes great writing. You know, if you look at like Herbert Warren Wynn, you know, he wrote the story of American golf, wrote all those great articles for the New Yorker, which went on and on and on as the New Yorker allowed him to do, but he had so much detail in his writing that it was, it was really, it's just, you don't find that much today. Well, really do, you think, do you think part of that is because of those, they're hiring these kids out of school for 20 grand a year and telling them you need to write three stories a day. And they're not really stories. It's just clickbait crap a lot of it. Yeah. Reaction. They're just reacting without much interpretation. And you see the same kind of articles all around in different papers and magazines. And they're kind of, you know, you, no, nobody has a distinct style anymore. You don't have a voice. Yeah. Is there anywhere right. now that you look at and you think, wow, this is still great long form writing, be it newspapers, magazines, books. The New Yorker, you know, The Atlantic. Those are good magazines that have good good writing. Um, Harper's, you know, but mm -hmm. most people don't see those. I mean, The New York Times, certainly, but very few people read The New York Times anymore, unfortunately. I was glad but, to but see they, that. They still got great writing. Outside so. Magazine, oh, I was just going to say, Outside has a, a thing now, and it may be only for subscribers, where it's their long form. And so it's back when Sebastian Younger, Susan Casey, you know, and, the, mm -hmm. and books came out of this, like the Perfect Storm book came out of a story mm -hmm. Sebastian did for them. And even Men's Journal, when he was on the staff back there in the 90s, that to me was still, it's not what it is today, which is not to insult anyone who, who works for Men's Journal today, but... um. Yeah, when you had a Sebastian Younger, and then I really like Adventure Journal, um, which is Steve Casimiro. And then he has uh, Brendan Leonard, who also writes for, for Outside. And then his, you know, one of his contributing photography ed editors is uh, none other than Chris Burkard, who Jim and I have interviewed mm -hmm. for a forthcoming project. And so, you know, that's an expensive subscription. I think it's 65 bucks for four issues. So I think some of those quarterlies that are a bit more obscure, maybe, you know, Surfer Journal, Adventure Journal, Proper Adventure out of Scotland are kind of where I go. But um, I think it's around, but it's just not as prevalent in, say, you can't just pick up something off the newsstand and find something like Frank Sinatra has a cold like you would back in the day. Right. That's true. Um, yeah, I think... I think uh, in golf, the Golfer's Journal is trying to do something like that. Um, and I've um, actually been approached by them to do some writing, but I, I'm still a contributor for Golf Digest, so contractually I can't do it. But, but I think Golfer's Journal is trying to do some long-form journalism in golf, and they run some very nice pieces. 
So yeah, you, know, you can still find it. Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah. So with these back in the day, how long would you have had for an assignment? And when you were assigning pieces, how long would you give either a staff writer or a freelancer um, to write like a long feature piece? Well, um, yeah. So, so the freelance write, well, we really didn't use freelancers at Golf Digest. Mm. They were all staff writers, staff editors. Yeah. Um, someone like a David Owen, who who um, wrote a lot for the, or has written a lot for the New Yorker. Um, he would, we would send him to Ireland for two or three weeks and just let him go. Yeah. I mean, that was a luxury we we had then. I don't think Golf Digest can do that much today. Um, we would send photographers uh, on assignments for a long, long time. We sent Dom Furor, one of the best golf photographers ever, to the Himalayas. And he, there was a little bit of golf in the Himalayas, believe it or not. And he stayed there for a month, waiting for the fog to lift and make sure that he got the pictures right. Can't do that today. All right. you know? but, but back uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, when Golf Digest was really at its heyday, um, we were able to, to do that. Tom Callahan um, wrote a great book with Dave Kindred where they, it was called Around the, uh, something about Around the World in 80 Holes or something like that, mm. where he and Dave Kindred, they, they literally went around the world uh, playing golf and writing about it. And those two writers can pull it off because they're so talented, but they also had a lot of leeway, you know, they were able to, to do yeah. it because they were so good. Definitely. So when did magazine journalism, well, not transition, because of course you've been a, a great writer and an editor for many years still, but what, what, tell us about how your first book came around and kind of the process of learning on the job with that. Um, well, my first couple of books were golf instruction books. In fact, the first one was with someone named Hank Johnson, who unfortunately just passed away last month at the age of 80. Hank was uh, the number one teacher in Alabama. He's in the Alabama Hall of Fame. Taught, um, he played the US Open, uh, I think at Champions in 1969. He was a really good player in his own right. But he um, taught in the Golf Digest schools and that's where I first met him. I used to go to the Golf Digest schools and hang out for five or six days with these different instructors getting instruction article ideas. And uh, I could work on my own game too, which is an, an added benefit. But that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to was to mine the the um, the minds of these great teachers. I mean, we had guys like Davis Love Jr. and Peter Costas and Bob Kosky and Jim Flick and um, you know you you name it. The top instructors in golf all taught in the Golf Digest schools back then, and Hank was one of them. Uh, and I went to a school. It was at Pinehurst, North Carolina. Hank was the lead instructor, and Jack Lumpkin was the short game instructor. And Paul Runyon was there, too, teaching the short game. And I got to be good buddies with Hank, and he helped me with my own game. And then he decided he wanted to do a book, which was titled How to Win the Three Games of Golf. And he asked me if I would go stride it for him. So it was my first foray into writing a real book. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work. Hank was great to work with. Um, it was a very distinct, you know, it was a lot of sports psychology in the book, Jim. He basically was saying that, you know, you can break golf down into three things, the golf, um, the golf swing, the golf shot, and the golf score. Mm. And the golf swing is what you practice without a ball, 
um, maybe in front of a mirror, maybe not even with a golf club, maybe it's with a broom or some other long stick, and you move, you work on your movement. And if you're trying to make a change in your golf swing, that's the fastest way to do it. Because Hank had done a lot of research into um, biomechanics and uh, quoted some biomechanic experts, and uh, he knew that that's how you could really improve quickly. When you're trying to hit a ball, you're distracted by the ball. So anyway, so you perfect your swing without a ball, and then when you go onto the practice range, you're really just hitting shots. When you start thinking about your mechanics on the range, you have to go away from the range, work out your mechanics without balls, and then go back to hitting balls. And then when you get on the golf course, all you're thinking about is the score. You're not thinking about your mechanics. You're, not, you're putting the shots that you worked on on the practice range into play on the golf course. So at the time, it was really a novel concept. This was 20 years ago we wrote that book, 25 maybe. And uh, but the first thing that Hank said to me when we started working on the book, he said, you know, I'm a good old boy from Alabama. You want, I need you to capture my voice. And I said, oh, okay, beware, the, beware when voice gets mentioned, right? Voice or tone. <laughs> I know. So anyway, that's what I tried to do. And, you know, this was before, you couldn't zoom and tape it. You know, I had to I had my little tape recorder, but a lot of it, I was just writing notes as fast as I could, you know, and then trying to remember how Hank sounded. And uh, that's what I did. And I think the book came out pretty well. Um, you can still find it on Amazon, but um I think it's out of print, but you can still get copies of it. So that was my first foray into into ghostwriting. And then uh, maybe five years after that, um, a great teacher from Austin, uh, Chuck Cook, who is still going strong, still teaches a lot of players. At the time, he was teaching three U.S. Open champions at the same time, Payne Stewart, Tom Kite, and Corey Pavin. And so... Uh, uh, Chuck asked me if I would write a book with him. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So we had a lot of fun. And he was really fun to hang out with and had that Texas humor. And we'd play practical jokes on each other. And um, and so we wrote this book. It was called uh, Perfectly Balanced Golf because he was very much into balance in the golf swing. Not so much meaning balance of not falling down, but balancing out your tendencies. Like if you have too much hook in your swing, he would give you drills to balance that out and make you more of a fader or vice versa. If you hit the ball too high, he'd give you drills to hit it lower. And uh, and I had to write three different forwards to the book, one by Payne Stewart, one by Corey, and one by Tom Kite. So I had to capture their voices too. So it was a, it was a great learning experience and a lot of fun. And again, that book is, is out there too. Uh, perfectly yeah. balanced yeah. the forward yeah because i had to do one for jim harbour um for my book mm -hmm. game changer with fergus conley and then i had to do one for the the pioneering uh waterman and big wave surfer led hamilton for waterman right. 2.0 so like sure. you said very different voices and i think fergus put jim's in front of him read it for like two minutes just skimmed it and was like makes me look good we're good <laughs> that was that was all the feedback he got <laughs> Well, it's funny, um, you know, and then when I ran into Bob Rotella two years ago at the Bears Club where he was um, playing golf with somebody and I was there and uh, we hadn't seen each other in a couple of years. And he said, Roger, what are you doing these days? And I said, well, I'm writing books and doing various things. He said, well, you want to write a book with me? And I said, 
well, what happened to your your writer? Uh, Bob Cullen had written like eight of his books. And he said, well, Bob doesn't want to do them anymore. And uh, he said, I want to do one more book. This might be my final book. And I said, yeah. And I said, do you have a publisher? He said, yep, Simon & Schuster. We're ready to go. So I said, yeah, let's do it. So so he talked me into that one. And, you know, it's this. Make your next shot your best shot. And uh, Not like you ever were... say that, Jim. I've never heard you say that. <laughs> and it's a great uh, attitude. You know, I tried to talk the editors into saying how to make your next shot your best shot, but they said it wasn't enough room on the cover. So that's fine. We went through a bunch of iterations of the, of the title and finally came up with that one. Um, but Bob, the first thing he said, Roger, the most important thing is you got to capture my voice. You know, and we talked about it for three or four phone calls before he said, yeah, let's go ahead and, and do it that he really wanted to be sure. And he wanted me to come down to Virginia and spend a week with him, you know, like his players do. But it was COVID by the time we got the project going. And so um, I wasn't comfortable, you know, traveling and being down there. So we did it all by Zoom. And it worked out great. We, we Zoomed with each other probably two or three times a week. And I was able to record everything, which really allowed me to capture his voice. Yeah, huzzah for rev.com, right? If you, <laughs> I can't type very fast, so I just have rev transcribe everything for me, and it's costly, but worth it, I think. You know, I've tried some programs like that, too, and, and I ended up, I, I did like a rough transcript that I could work from, but it, there mm. were so many changes and mistakes in it that mm. it was almost not worth it to me. It's okay. almost better just to keep listening to the real tape and, and going through it. But I, I did a lot of research. You, I think you for, type and probably write a lot quicker than I do in which I don't know. But, um, you know, we went through a number of iterations on the book and created all the, all the chapters. And uh, But talk about, you know, capturing your voice. And so then we talked about well, who could do, who could write the foreword. And one of Bob's biggest players is Padraig Harrington. Mm. And I, I actually suggested to Bob, I said, have you thought of getting Padraig to do it? Because I said, the book is about, it will probably be coming out right around the Ryder Cup where he'll be the captain of the European team. So he put a call into Padraig and Padraig said, yeah, I'd love to do it. So I Zoomed with Padraig twice and that's a totally different voice, you know. The and Irish, accent, yeah. And accent and everything. And we got... Um, some Irish jokes in there and, uh, you know, some, some of the Irish wit. A couple of things went over my head. I didn't understand. And Padraig thought that was really funny when, when I sent him the chapter. He said, no, 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 you totally misunderstood this. <laughs> but that's fine. We, we had a lot of fun with it. And he was great. Padraig's the best. I really enjoy working with him. Yeah, so. it's it's a fantastic forward, and, and I'm really enjoying the book. Congratulations. Um, oh, good. It's a fantastic book. We recommend it, Phil and I, to everyone. Um, it, you know, it's not just about, you know, being a champion in golf. It's about being a champion in life. You know, all mm -hmm. those lessons apply equally off the course. Um, any favorite nuggets from Bob on the mental game? Oh, gosh. Um, let me think about that. Well, you know, he's... He's all about staying in the present tense. Um, you know, the, 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 the beauty of Bob is that it's all common sense. You know, he's telling you what you already know, but you still need to be reminded of it all the time. Um, there's nothing earth shattering. There's nothing groundbreaking. Um, I think what was most enlightening to me, and it kind of goes against the grain, is that he thinks people today need to be cocky. They need to... They need to um, toot their own horn more, even if even if you're 
almost obnoxious about it. Um, you know, like Patrick Reed. You know, he's a big fan of Patrick Reed. Mm. And when Patrick Reed won Doral a few years ago and said he's in the top five players in the world, and everybody said, what? You know, no, you're 25. But he believed he was in the top five, and he was telling everybody about it. Then he started backing it up. So anyway, um, and, and, and Bob couches out a little bit. He says, well, you don't have to be obnoxious about it, but if, if you don't want to tell other people that you're as good as you are, you better at least believe it to yourself, you know, and believe that you're really, really good and you can beat everybody and just go around thinking it. So that was that was eye opening to me. Um, and and what, what's really neat about the book, too, is, as you know, Jim um, and Phil, is that Bob brings in a lot of other sports into this book. It's a golf book, basically, but he, he's coached a lot of other athletes um, in a lot of other sports. Um, and he's worked with a lot of coaches. So, you know, a lot of basketball coaches and uh, whether it's um, uh, Jim Calhoun, you know, UConn or who, whoever it might be. Yeah, John he can draw. He can draw on that experience. So that made the book really different. It made it different from his other books. And the other thing, too, is that it's all about excellence and achieving goals that are higher than you think you can achieve. So I think most sports psychologists would say, no, you need to set realistic goals, goals that you can achieve. And Bob's kind of threw that out the window. He said, no, I want you to set goals that are higher than you think you can achieve and, and really go for it. Just if you don't try, what's the point of living life? So it's different, you know, I mean, I, maybe there is something to that. I'm a big fan of that idea in terms of, you know, set, uh, that seems impossible goals. And, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you work your tail off and, you know, with daily acts of excellence, uh, you might find them more uh, realistic than you think. Uh, so I'm a big fan of that. Um, yeah. I mean, Jack, working with Jack Nicholas, then working with Bob Rotella, and then you wrote another book on the history of Quaker Ridge, which right. was designed by a hall of fame golf architect, A.W. Tillinghast, who's, uh, you know, so you're, we're talking about <laughs> your, you know, even though he's passed away a long time ago, uh, you have a, you know, what is it, the one degree away or one degree of separation from, you know, probably everyone in the history of golf. But yeah, tell us about that book. That must, that sounds fascinating, doing a deep dive into that private uh, country club. You know, um, the Tillinghast chapter on that book was, was my favorite to write because he was such a character. You know, he was probably an alcoholic. Um, if he was doing his designs late in the day, they were pretty weird designs. If he's doing them in the morning, they're a lot more conventional. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and he designed the great course across the street from Quaker Ridge called Wingfoot. And, uh, and people, all, they all know about Wingfoot, but they might not know about Quaker Ridge. And a lot of people say Quaker Ridge is even better. You know, but when you play it, um, the greens look very similar. You know, they're raised up and elevated, same kind of bunkering. Um, they'll, they'll have a tree or a, uh, an aiming point somewhere behind the green that you're supposed to aim at. Things like that. Lots of false fronts. Lots of bunkers that are well short of the green that give you the perception that the, um, the, 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 the shot 
the approach shot should just be just over that bunker and then you hit it and you end up 15 feet short of the green things like that so um yeah this is this is the what the book looks like yeah, yeah the pictures great, are absolutely it's a, beautiful such a great size um similar to a size of um george yeoman pocock who people anyone who's read the boys in the boat will know that name he's the master right shell builder who at the time of the boys in the boat was building not just at university of washington but even their arch rival cal and basically every great rowing program so yeah when i first saw the book i was like yeah it's roughly the same format as the book not the boys in the boat but the book uh ready all about uh george yeoman pocock so yeah i love that like you said jim i love love the artwork of it love the design as well as obviously the writing well i have to give a shout out to martin davis who um is the publisher of the Book. He's a member at Quaker Ridge, and he's the one who recruited me to write the book. And I've known Martin forever, but he's a master at finding great old photographs and then working with a designer and making the books really come to life. I mean, this is a picture right here of um, yeah, it's so good. It, it's uh, it's an incredible picture. It's it's when yeah. uh, Johnny Farrell won the U.S. Open, and he was the club pro at Quaker Ridge and he came back and they gave they gave him this fabulous dinner that night and there's also I think a picture somewhere yeah here of this um caddy parade is what it is yeah. all the caddies from the club came out and and basically marched with him from the from the clubhouse out to um to one of the greens and that's the way they celebrated him coming back to Quaker Ridge after he won the U.S. Open. But um, I didn't do the research on the on the photography, fortunately. I just wrote wrote the words. But I did do a lot of research into the club. And fortunately, I had a, an old club history that had never been published from 50 years before. Or oh, wow. I'm sorry, from 75 years before. And this was the 100th anniversary. So I had that to work with. It wasn't very well written. Um, in fact, it wasn't even edited. It was just a manuscript, but it gave me a framework to work from. And uh, and then the, the course was was restored by Gil Hance and uh, a few years ago, back to the original Tillinghast design. Um, and so I got to spend some time with Gil Hance uh, going over, you know, all the changes that he had done. And I, and I wrote up, there's a whole by whole description of the original hole and the way it looks today, and which Gil wrote, I, I, I ghost wrote it for him. But but um, he's a, he's a brilliant guy and a lot of fun to, to hang around. So it's all good, you know. Writing a, a club history, I think, is the hardest kind of writing. It, it's a lot more research than people realize, um, <clears throat> especially if you're starting from scratch. You've got to go into archives and spend countless hours in the library and. Yeah going through old photo uh, um, uh, newspaper files. Not a lot of fun. I don't know. I think, I, think, I think you have more fun with it than you're <clears> letting on. When you find that little gold nugget or you had a conception about something and then it's dismantled and then you find something else out that's even better than what you originally thought, I think you'd dig that somehow, right? Mm -hmm. On some level. It's, it's okay, yes. It's, all right. it's panning for gold. The panning may not be pleasant but if you find those gold nuggets at the end of the day or after five days or two years that's the that, that's the good stuff right there 
Yeah. Well, we talked about the whole idea of chasing excellence and, and, you know, it's important in every endeavor that, Mm. uh, to understand that there's going to be a lot more grunt work than there's going to be glitter. And, uh, and that grunt work, you know, it's, is, you know, you have to go through that process. And, uh, and and like you were saying earlier, Roger, you know, we all want the promise, but we got to start with the process. What is your writing process? Like, I know Phil and I would get a kick, kick out of that and all the creators listening as well. Well, I have to write when it's very, very quiet. And generally for me, that means probably one or two in the morning. I do I do most of my best writing starting after my wife goes to bed. It's quiet in the house. I can just have my own time and <clears throat> probably from like 11 o'clock till two or three in the morning. And then I sleep late. Me too. That's if I me. have my druthers, that, that's the same. Jim and I are both in the house too. So it's a bit different these days with our other endeavors and kids and everything else. But yeah, um, particularly my history books where I was working full-time jobs at tech companies, freelancing at the Yazoo for magazines and doing basically these labors of love that never made any money with the two history books, you know, one on church, the one on Truman. That's where the golden hours are is, is, um, is late. And one time I talked to Stephen Kotler, um, the flow researcher, who wrote the, the great book, um, The Rise of Superman. And um, he said, mm-hmm. every writer I know is either mm-hmm. laying down several hundred words before everyone else is awake or after everyone is asleep or both, particularly if it's not your main source of income. And, I, and I've held on to that over the years because I think it's so true. Some people are early morning folks and they'll be done by the, the time everyone, their family's up for breakfast and they're good for the day. And then for us, it's after everyone's asleep. So yeah, I love that we're the three of us are kind of on the same, uh, literally on the same page if you'll pardon the bad dad joke. Well, one of the reasons I went into magazine journalism instead of newspaper journalism is I discovered in in J school pretty quickly that I had a very hard time writing when other people were around me, like in a newsroom. Mm. You know, there's too much commotion, too many distractions. <clears throat> when you're getting back to, to writing um, times, um, the, I, I learned that I couldn't I couldn't concentrate when other people were around me. It's just too distracting. And I don't know how newspaper writers do it. I really don't know. When when they're in a cubicle and there's and you got an editor shouting at them, you know, I need your copy now. And I, I found out pretty quickly that magazine journalism was more my style. I had a... Um, uh, advisor and professor, Dr. Ranley, uh, R-A-N-L-Y at University of Missouri. He was the best guy ever. And he talked me into going into magazine journalism. Mm. And then I, you know, you can, if you're writing articles, you can do it on your own. You can go into a quiet office. You can do it at home and, and just spend some quality time just really focusing on what you're trying to do. That's the only way I can write. No, I love it. I love it. See, for me, it's these uh, etymotic headphones with uh, different tips on them. And literally, they go into my brain. And it you could be on the airplane and not hear a thing. Like people always talk about their bows or whatever. This is 30 years of research right here for the no, same reason. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's good. Well, I, I have actually written quite a bit on planes over the years. Oh, really? Yeah, since COVID, I haven't flown anywhere for the last 18 months. Mm. But um, yeah, I would write um, when I did the Nicholas book, I spent a lot of time on airplanes and I kind of tried to pride myself on at least getting a rough draft of whatever chapter it was. If I went to see one of this, these courses as I was flying back home, 
uh, or flying to the next destination. Because, That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. How did you do that with stewardesses tapping you and saying, oh, what do you want to drink? Or do you want the peanuts? And then passengers pushing their feet into the back of your seat. How did you how do you reconcile that with your home environment, which is more? I, I don't like aisle seats. I like the window seats. I would always want to be on the window side where I wouldn't have to get up and I wouldn't have to be bothered. And um, yeah, headphones and with the headphones, put on the headphones yeah. and you know, yeah. that kind of signals to the person next to you. You're not interested in talking about anything. And as soon as, you know, as soon as I was able to get the laptop out, I, I wouldn't even put it in my backpack. You know, I'd always keep it kind of in my little pack, whatever I was carrying. So I wouldn't have to like get up and get it out of the upper, you know, out of the, the bin up above, you know, I always kind of managed to keep it in the sleeve right in front of me. So as soon as, you know, the wheels were up and I was able to legally start writing, I would pull that thing down and I would start writing. Now, how did you come across this ability? Because this sounds horrible slash very daunting to me to even attempt to write a, a coherent paragraph or two on a plane. Well, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, when, you, when you're a managing editor of a major magazine like I was, your, your number one priority is to get things done. And, the, and I learned pretty early on that you, in order to get things done, you can't procrastinate. You've got, you just got to get in there and do things, right? As soon as you start procrastinating, you'll never, ever get it done. So I just kind of forced myself to get started at least. I think when you at least get started and start writing something, then it can start to flow. Um, and, you know, when you're writing something like a, like a book where you've got a lot of research and you've got notes, it's not like you don't have the material. You're not trying to create something out of nothing. You have the material. It's just a matter of figuring out which you're going to do first and what's going to come next and try to start organizing it. And fortunately with, with computers and, you know, we're, you know, I was right on word, um, you know, it's really easy to move things around quickly. Mm -hmm. So in the old days, back when I was in J school, you know, you were writing on a, on a manual typewriter with a piece of paper with a carbon <laughs> and you would have to write your news story. And if you made a mistake, you had to scratch through it in a certain way that you wouldn't mess up the, the carbon. You couldn't just move things around, you know? And then that carbon went into another bin, the carbon copy. So, you know, you, you had to compose it in your head pretty much. You had to pretty neatly and completely in your head every paragraph before you started writing the paragraph. Yeah. You, there, you, know, you, you weren't scratching out, you weren't moving things around, you weren't deleting, you weren't, I mean, today, writing on a word processor is so much easier. 100%. Mm -hmm. um, so with that nighttime book writing, do you have a page count goal? Do you have a word count goal? Or is it just advance the ball in some way, whether it's two yards or a hundred yard return for a well, touchdown? Depends, that's a good question. It depends on the book. I mean, with Bob's book, we had, I think, 12 or 13 chapters. Mm -hmm. And um, by the time I got enough material for one chapter, um, I was able to pretty much write a chapter in maybe two or three nights. That's great. You know, yeah, that's great. Um, and and once it's once I get a rough draft, then I, it's pretty easy. Then then you're just editing. Yeah. And editing is so much easier and more, more fun for me because then you're embellishing. You're saying, oh yeah, whatever. And then I would Google something. I'd find, oh that's a neat anecdote. We should put that in. I would text Bob and say, hey Bob, did you know that? You know, Michael Jordan, it really wasn't his, his sophomore year. He, it was his junior year that he got cut 
from his team or whatever it was, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and Bob would text back, "Yeah, you're right. We we got to do that." And then he would pester me with ideas and little boxes of ideas, and he was constantly sending me new material, and and then I would try to work it into the chapter. I'd say, "Oh yeah, that would work in this chapter, or that would work in that chapter." Mm. So it was up to me to keep it all organized. He he really wasn't doing that. He was just feeding me raw material. Yeah. And letting me kind of it's, and, and to Bob's credit, he really let me have pretty free reign on what I mm-hmm. on how we wanted to structure the book. He really did. It, is the joy to be found for you in the kind of what we would call maybe these days geeking out with him on certain little details and like what what was yeah. the most fun for you um, in in co-authoring or ghostwriting? He, he would tell me he would tell me anecdotes about some players and stuff that have to remain in confidence. But mm-hmm. he took me into his confidence and said, "Oh yeah, this is you know somebody's sex life or somebody's you know whatever you know it happens to be." And um, you know that's pretty eye opening. Some things that you know personal things about people that I would he knows I would never share with anybody. Yeah. What but, about those um, fun stories that you could share or you did include? Were there some there where you you sent him something and he'd light up about it or vice versa? And you were like, yeah, this is the good stuff here. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the really neat chapters, it, it was a late chapter we added because um, I was telling him, I said, Bob, I think we need a little more substance to really make this book. Yeah, funny how that creeps up on you, right, Jim? <laughs> we we did the same thing with the leader's mind and, and with the follow-up that's hopefully forthcoming next year. So totally get that. Yeah. So he had this great idea. He said, what if we get Tom Kite to do a whole chapter for us? And um, because he'd been working with Kite forever. And, and Kite's been playing at a high level for a very, very long time. And so it was great. So we did a Zoom call. Bob and Tom and me together, which I taped, and Tom was terrific. You know, he gave us a lot of really interesting information. I, at the time, I didn't think it was very interesting. When when I was when we were zooming, I was going, "Man, how am I going to make this work?" You know, this is kind of boring. But then when I went back and started reading the the transcript and and going through the tapes, I said, "You know, this is actually pretty cool stuff." You know, when he started talking about Harvey Penick and Ben Crenshaw and you know, when when Kite was saying, you know, Ben Crenshaw was two years younger than me, and he was beating my brains in when I was, when we were in college together. You know, that's that's really telling stuff for him to admit. And but he was very honest about things like that. So, I think that was that was really fun to to see Tom in person talking about what it was like um, growing up in in Austin and what in the the um, the the um, the principles that his father taught him that he still lives by today. And, uh, you know, I mean, Tom was a little guy and yet he was able to, he was a leading money winner for like seven or eight years on tour. It's pretty incredible. Absolutely. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the, the art of interviewing and particularly interview prep? Well, first off, you don't want to ask, closed questions you always want to ask open questions no Uh-oh. yes or no question oh jim we're on the bubble now <laughs> that's a that's a counseling idea as well <laughs> i'm sure yeah that's yeah. perfect yeah you want people to open up so you don't say um like to Patrick harrington of course harrington's great you don't have to get him to open up he opens up no matter what but but i wouldn't say something to Padre like um like uh did you enjoy 
playing in the 1993 U.S. Open. You know, I would say, what about the 1993 U.S. Open really was enjoyable for you? So, or the how, right? You were talking about the how yeah. earlier. How, why, like what, that. who? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and also with Harrington, you know, I would instead of saying something like, um, um, "How come?" I would say something like, "How? Why did you do this in the such and such Ryder Cup on the 17th hole?" And number one, that would show him that I had researched and knew what I was talking about to a, to a point. And, and, I, and I think that creates a, um, a trust right there. He says, oh, this guy's done some research. He's, he's aware of my career. And I definitely did that before talking to Padre. I studied his career forever. I knew every Ryder Cup match that he had won and lost. I knew his Walker Cup record. I knew um, uh, when he had won his first junior tournament, all that kind of stuff. And I even brought it up, you know. I said, I, I remember reading something about you uh, playing in a junior tournament where you should have won the tournament and something happened at the end. You know, tell, can you tell me about that? What happened? And he told me, he said, said, yeah, they called me choker, uh, you know, in the, in the car park. I was, um, felt like, uh, it was the end of the world. I felt like I was never going to win a, a tournament ever in my life. And, but he got through that, you know, and he got through it. And, and then when he started working with Bob, Bob really helped him to get over that, those, um, uh, the, the distrust in his own game really helped him believe in his game. So things like that, I guess, you know, you, you just try to make sure that the person you're interviewing knows that you've done your homework. You it's not, like not that easy with Jack when I, I've interviewed Jack a lot over <laughs> yeah, the years. Tell I, us I, about, a little more about Jack. Uh, he's one well, of I, I, ghost wrote, I ghost wrote his articles for probably 10 years. And the way that happened is I, I met Jim Flick in the Golf Digest schools. And Jim and I became really good friends. And I used to write all of Jim's articles. I did that for about 20 years. And then one day I'm at the Memorial Tournament working with Jim on an article. He invited me to come out there because um, he was doing a clinic. And I flew out there. And then he said, come out to the tournament the next day. So it went on Thursday. We're on the, on the practice range that morning. And he's working with Nicholas, you know. And Jack is like spraying it all over the place but just before he's ready to go out and play in his own tournament. And this is when Jack was still really competitive. And, um, sorry, there's a plane flying overhead. <laughs> and so Jack introduced, I mean, Jim introduced me to Jack and, um, and Jack doesn't forget anybody, you know? So probably uh, the next year I went out to the Memorial again and Jim bring, brings me out to see Jack and Jim, hi Roger, how are you? Wow. It's amazing. Absolutely it's amazing. Gary players the same way. But um, so, yeah, um, so I started. So, so then uh, Ken Bowden had written all of Jack's books and had written Jack's articles for Golf Digest. And Ken passed away. And, uh, and Ken was a good friend of mine. We members at the same club in Connecticut. Um, and he gave me a lot of insight into Jack and how to work with him and talk to him. And um, so <clears throat> when that happened, I, uh, we were looking for someone to ghostwrite Jack's articles and Jim recommended Jack to me, J J recommended me to Jack, excuse me. And so I started working with Jack and I spent quite a bit of time. I'd go to his office down in Jupiter and went to his house two or three times and 
and he kind of became confident with me. But um, with Jack, you know, he always makes sure that you know he's boss. When you first sit down with him, no matter who you are, he says, why are we doing this? No one told me about it. Um, you know, really puts you off your guard, you know. And uh, but then once you get through that, then he'll give you all the time you need. He's terrific and he's very open and, and he's great. And then what happened was when um, when I left Golf Digest full time, one of the first things that happened is that Andy O'Brien, Jack's uh, uh, vice president of the Golden Bear at the time, called me and said, Jack, we're looking at some, to someone to write a book about his golf courses. Would you be interested? And I said, absolutely, I'll do it. So that's how that happened. Yeah. What a nice yeah, feather in your cap. That's a, and that's a coffee. That's a, that's a coffee table book as well. It is. It's a, I got a, I got a copy of it right here. It's called golden 18. Very heavy. As well. It should be. Yeah. That yeah. looks the, 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 the cover is fantastic. Um, and that must've been tough, uh, uh, you know, in terms of just picking just 18, he's, he's been a part of so many amazing golf courses. Yeah. Um, I didn't pick them. Although I had something to do with it. <laughs> there you go. Made that, that made it a little bit easier. Yeah, but I uh, know Jack picked them personally. I'm just looking. This is kind of what it looks like on the inside. You'll have, there's a lot of writing, but there's also a lot of pictures of That's what great. it's like to be inside the club. And um, Jim Jim Mandeville uh, is Jack's personal photographer, and he shadowed me. I would go to the courses first do all my research. And then I would send Jim a photo list of what he needed to shoot. And then he would come a week or two later and he would do all the pictures. So that's how that worked. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. You can't underestimate the value of a good photographer. Right. And you must've worked mm -hmm. with some of the best ever at, at golf digest. As you mentioned, a couple of the names, were there any others that, that stood out, not just in the quality of their work, but just their, their craftsmanship and devotion. Absolutely. Steven Stevens early is, mm. is one of the top, in fact, we started at Golf Digest the same week. Oh, Very wow. Interesting. Yeah, so we go back a long ways. But Steve is still one of the, the all-time best, especially for golf course photography. Um, he, he's just, uh, I have pictures that he gave me and my wife for our um, wedding wedding uh, gift that, are, that we have framed, beautiful pictures, ones of desert highlands and ones of uh, sawgrass. And they're, they're just beautiful. He, he always knows how to wait to the end of the day, the right time of the light, when the light's mm. just right, you know, and he's very patient. Um, but Steve is terrific. Um, at the time, Jim Moriarty, I always thought was a great photographer, but he kind of stopped taking pictures. Uh, he's out of North Carolina. Um, uh, there's some other really good ones. Um, and I'm not, not thinking of them right now, but maybe I will by the time we finish our conversation. Mm -hmm. But uh, th there's a lot of great photographers. Um, but it's either. funny, you're, we're talking about Nicholas. Um, Gary Player, I, I've become very close to, um, remembers at the same club down in Florida. And, uh, and he's another one who will remember your name. And I got to play with Gary at an outing. This is probably 50, 20 years ago in New York. They were opening a, a course that he had redesigned, and I had an invitation to play in his group representing Golf Digest. So I played with him. We had a nice day. I had I woke up that morning and my back was killing me. I almost thought, oh my goodness, I'm not going to be able to play in this. I don't know what I did to it. I tweaked my back, and um, but I figured I'm going to play no matter what. So I'm playing with Gary, 
And I told him, I said, Gary, I, I can barely swing the club, you know, but I'm, I'm going to play today. And so we played and he gave me some exercises, gave me a couple of anecdotes. He told me to swing a golf club left-handed a uh, hundred times a day. And that would solve my back problem. Oh, but kind of that asymmetry, right? In rotation. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he gave me a couple of anecdotes about when his back went out on him and he had to sleep on the floor of an airplane oh. one time. Well, he, remember, he yeah. Remember Steve Nash at the end of his career couldn't even sit down during timeouts because it would, or or when he was pulled out, substituted out, he'd have to lie down by the bench. A similar thing. Right. So I played one round of golf with Gary. A year later, full year later, I'm at the golf the uh, Metropolitan Golf Writers Dinner, and it's a huge dinner. You know, 1,200 people there, and there's a big dais. And Gary's up at the dais; he's getting an award. I forget what it was for. And at the halfway break, I decided I would just go up and say hi to Gary if I could. So I picked my spot. I waited, you know, and I finally got up. And I got up to the dais and I said, "Hi, Gary. I'm sure you don't remember me, but we played golf last year at." wherever purchased new york it's your club and he goes hi roger how's your back and i just like i hadn't even told him my name yet and this is a guy that meets you know 100 people a day and how he remembered that is absolute beyond me it's just incredible that's a gift it's kind of like I, I remember hearing about Bill Clinton, an early interviewer of his, and it wasn't, you know, Taylor Branch or someone that worked with him closely, but said that he would, he was always where his feet are, Jim, as you would say, and he would look you in the eye and he would make you feel like you were the only person in the room, even if it was a convention and there were 2000 people there and they were all clamoring to meet him. And if he was there, he was there until you were done speaking to him and only then would he move on. And Nicholas is the same way. Nicholas yeah, has those steely blue eyes, and he just looks right at you the whole time when you're interviewing him. Yeah, yeah I, I, it sounds like Arnold Palmer was the same way as well. Yeah, yeah, really it made people feel like they were the only person in the room. Yeah, did it's, you? It's a gift, but and you know, I you know they always say Jim that Jack didn't have a sports psychologist, but a lot of people say well Barbara was a sports psychologist. And, uh, and she's a wonderful person. I got to interview her three times for this book. There's a, a chapter, uh, four pages on, on Barbara and, uh, and what she had done at Muirfield Village. That She created this, this uh, garden there that's uh, a tribute to all the great players in the game. And uh, she was actually more fun to, to hang out with than, than Jack. I mean, she was, she's a treat. She, she's she's a special person. Uh, I've worked with several tour players, and mm-hmm. uh, the wives would reach out to her and ask, you know, what? How can I help my husband? And mm-hmm. she would say, make sure they leave for their tournament happy. You know that they're in a good frame of mind, and <laughs> yeah. everything back home is okay. And you know, just give them that freedom to go out there and and, and play and be in the moment. And uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, she she's she's fantastic uh, in terms of helping other tour players' wives uh, to help the players. But um, yeah, she uh, she has a big personality in, in in my book, The Champions Comeback. Uh, I mentioned Jack's story about where he, he gives her credit for uh, 14 of his majors. And he said, I'll give myself really? credit for about four of them. <laughs> you know, like that's that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, it was, yeah. you know, I'm sure it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it just shows that, they you know, they're a total power couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of which, is your wife your first reader for your books? Um, for the Nicholas book, she absolutely was. For the Rotella book, I would say probably not, because she 
she knows that stuff herself already. Um, yeah, I, I mean, she read she read the chapters, but uh, I, I wouldn't say she was the first reader. I'd say Bob was the first reader. Okay. I asked I asked that because my wife Nicole edits all of our stuff, um, both of ours, and uh, and every word I write, all my articles, everything. Heaven help her. Yeah, well, we're I mean we're partners in crime and in a number of endeavors, and uh, and I trust her with everything. I mean, um, I often have her read emails before I send them out. You know, <laughs> I want to be sure that I didn't say something that's going to offend somebody or. I'll make sure that they're they're accurate. But yeah, she's she's one of my she's my trusted companion. She's very yeah. conscientious, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, she really is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to share any more about any of those kind of tandem endeavors? Um, you mean with uh like Gary Player or No, with, I mean I mean with with, with your good with lady wife? wife, and I know we're gonna interview her separately, so I don't want yes. to spoil that. But um right. yeah, just talk to me a little bit about about that one in particular, maybe the triple F. She just received a or just is completing a major degree in, in nutrition to go along with her sports psychology. It's a big three-year degree from the University of Bridgeport. And uh, she just finished her comps yesterday. So she's oh, wow. breathing a big sigh of relief. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a, a lot of work, a lot of biochemistry she had to learn. But um, she's, I, I would say she's the most educated person I know. She has two master's degrees, a, a doctorate, wow. and now a third master's degree that she's just, just about to get, plus a her, her undergraduate degree from a Jesuit university, Wheeling College, Wheeling University. So she she's extremely well-educated and taught school for a number of years. And uh, um, and then she and I have started this program, which we'll talk about for this other podcast um, for combat injured veterans. So we've learned a lot about that. And she's taught me a lot about combat injured veterans and how to talk to them and deal with them and um, um, that's one of our passions now is, is uh, helping these guys and women. No, oh, absolutely. So, That's great. Yeah. yeah. You can't, um, you talked about power couples, Jim. Well, it sounds like uh, you're and your, your good lady wife for that too, Roger, in many ways. So uh, yeah, I think it's um, yeah. Like with Nicole in the book, she, her name's never on the cover. Sometimes my name isn't on the cover as you mm -hmm. know, better than anyone, but uh, every word that comes out passes through and it's it's her dad her father was a um a math professor and a vp of finance at, at mid-american nazarene um which is a then an naia school now an ncaa division two school in suburban kansas city and it's that pattern recognition brain they have the same mind um because editing to her is pattern recognition at least you know fine-tuned copy editing and developmental editing and uh Without it, we'd be sunk. I'd be, I'd be sunk. It's true. And, and my wife, Patricia Donnelly, she she's a um, she she was an English major, mm. undergrad. So I mean, she knows all the classics. She knows Shakespeare, and and she knows good writing, and she knows you know grammar, and so she can definitely keep me on track if I stray from that area as well. Although I think I'm a fairly good grammarian myself, but uh, I am um, not. Uh, As you'll probably I, I notice when you read when you read the leader's mind, but <laughs> all errors are mine. It has nothing to do with Jim, <laughs> right, Jim? Well, I couldn't even spot the errors. You, would, yeah, we we definitely benefited from a little help on this one. Yeah, I wish I had a ghostwriter for my first three books. It's uh, it's uh, what's the old Hemingway saying? Writing is easy. You know, you sit in front of the you know for him typewriter, and then you start to bleed. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah, it's well, the, painful. The Churchill yeah, quote about first it's uh you know 
of you know basically the the uh the, the whole thing goes through the various stages of grief almost with the book and then he says and then something like and then you fling it out to the pub kill the monster and or kill the beast and fling it out to the public so that's my favorite quote about uh about writing i remember this um when i was a golf digest we we idolized this fellow named herb graphis <clears throat> herb was uh the founder of something called the uh, Go the National Golf Foundation, I think, and he started a magazine called Golf Dumb, I believe it was. I'm, I could be wrong about that. But it ended up becoming Golf Industry News or something. But Herb was was a classic, and he would, you know, he was probably 80 years old when I first came to Golf Digest, so I really didn't know him. But he would write critiques of the magazine that we would all share and, and look at through Nick's sites. But I remember one day he regaled us with a story that he remembered writing a book, one of his books, and he had this terrible writer's block. He could not get this thing done. And, and he lived in South Florida, I believe, Miami area. And it was really hot down there. And he checked himself into a hotel room, a motel room, and he bought a, a tub, a metal tub, and he filled it with ice. And he filled it with like two cases of beer and there was no air conditioning at the time. So he stripped himself naked and he put himself in the tub with just a couple of towels just to cool off. And they put up a little table there and he started typing. And that's how he started writing this book. And he said he didn't know how he finished the book, but he woke up the next morning and the beer was gone and the book was written. Oh, wow. <laughs> I always remember that. That's that's boy, if it were only that's, that easy. Well, that's the probably the best one I've ever heard. The second best is and it's a bad anecdote because I forget the um, the writer's name. But I think Cal Newport in his book, Deep Work, which is really about what it sounds like. Focus, you know, how to train your calendar block, time block, this kind of thing. And, and Cal's written a number of great books about the ills of social media among them. I think that one's called Digital Minimalism. But I think he mentions that this writer gets on a plane to Tokyo. He booked himself a return ticket to Tokyo from maybe L.A. or somewhere like that with no intention of actually, you know, he visited Japan many times, no intention of, of really getting off, but just gets out the airport, shakes, it, shakes off the rust for a couple hours and basically wrote an entire book on the way out plus the way back. There you go. But that's like, an expensive that's way, way to, to do it. It, it is. <laughs> Unless <laughs> you're like flying business class. Right. right. <laughs> or you're really but, like sushi, maybe. Yeah. Well, maybe, right. yeah. Or you, you have like a, an onsen, you know, the hot springs there with some um, some of the monkeys that are that up in the mountains, you know, that kind of the snow monkeys or whatever, the macaques. And uh, yeah, maybe he, he, he should have fit that in the middle. But yeah, I think the ice bath story even trumps that. That's brilliant. Yep. So we're on the 18th fairway right now of the interview. We're we're heading toward the oh, green. Oh, there we go. Yep. There we go. Some quick hits to finish up. Uh, favorite golf tip? Wow. Favorite golf tip? Well, I just got one from Gary Player, and I tell you what, it is great. It, he revamped my bunker game. This is it. Wait on your left on your lead foot for me. Your left foot, well left. Cock the club up as quickly as you can. And then just uncock it right down behind the ball. Simple. It's all you do. And you never skull it. The ball always comes out of the bunker every time. You always, it, it gets you to accelerate the club through. And now I see why Gary Player is probably the best bunker player of all time. That's right. That's right. Favorite mental game tip? 
Uh, let me think about that. Um, it's one that my wife, Patty, has given me. When you're playing in a tournament um, or in, in you're playing a round of golf, every hole is a new tournament. No matter what you shoot. If you birdie the first hole, the next hole is a new tournament. That birdie is behind you. If you double bogey the first hole, the next hole is a tournament. If you're in the 16th hole and you just, you know, hit one out of bounds and made triple or something, you get on the 17th tee, you're in a new tournament. So oh, she always says every hole is a new tournament. That That's fantastic. Uh, that would be a, a, a good name for uh, for her golf book. <laughs> yeah, it would. Yeah, I should yeah. offer to do yeah. it with her. A nice title. Yeah. Uh, and then one more from me. Um, favorite golf course you've ever played? Okay. Well, I'm a little biased. Um, I'll, I'll give you two. One that okay. I'm a member at and one that I'm not. It would be Cypress Point would be my favorite. I feel like it's it's Pine Valley with the Pacific Ocean. Okay. I mean, everybody says Pine Valley is the best course in the country. But I would prefer the crescendo of coming up to um, that last hole at... Um, at Cypress Point, where you hear the ocean getting louder and louder, and you start hearing the seals barking out there, and it's just it's just a magical place. Um, we happen to be members of a club in Ireland called Ballyliffin. It's really, really hard to get there. Um, it's about a four, four and a half hour drive from Dublin, um, but it's nothing but 36 holes of pristine Lynx golf and the sea. Every hole has an ocean view. They've got two courses. One is called the Glacetti because there's a big rock out in the water called the Glacetti Rock. And the other one is called the Old Links, which was redesigned by Nick Faldo a few years ago. But, and they played the Irish Open on Glacetti, I think, two years ago, maybe three years ago. I mean, it's a really stern test of golf. But both of them are just great. Um, it's on a little peninsula called the Inishowen Peninsula. And it's actually farther north than Northern Ireland even though it's in the Republic of Ireland. But um, if you ever have a chance to get to Ballyliffin, don't pass it up. It's a, a special place. Uh, do you have Do you have a third in Scotland? Do you have one in Scotland you like? Um, let me think, Scotland. Well, I love Dornick. Um, uh, I would say maybe Dornick, yeah. That, that's hard to get to, too, is if it's the one I'm thinking of. Uh, it is. It's up yeah. near Inverness. Yeah. What do you like There's best another... about it? Well, it's where Donald Ross grew up, and uh, so it's influenced 150 golf courses in the United States. Any course that Donald Ross designed has been influenced by Dornick. Yeah. Um, you can still go to a little building in the town of Dornick and see a little tiny plaque that says the home of Donald Ross or the birthplace of Donald Ross where he was born. And um, the town is a little magical town. Um, there's a little hotel right off the first tee, so it's really special. You play out, and then you come back and play back in to the to the to the town. Um, it's got the best bunkering. You know, you've really got to have a great bunker game to play play well there. And uh, you know, it's always windy, and so you got to got to play good Scottish golf, keep the ball down. Yeah, it's, it's it's special. I'd say Dornick would be maybe my third. That that's the inspiration too for Bandon Dunes and uh, with with Mike Keiser and uh, yeah, I love the saying that uh, without the wind, there's no golf. The old Scottish mm -hmm. saying and uh, and and uh, it makes it more fun. 
And then we have the golf tip from the, the, the tip that you gave us from, from uh, Gary Player in terms of how to get out of those bunkers. At, <laughs> well, there you go. Completely. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's right. The tip from Nicholas is don't get in the bunkers to begin with. Don't get in there. Yeah. <laughs> no, he would, he would blast them right over the bunkers I back in his day. Probably. Yeah. Um, Roger, to any young creators, you know, writers, editors, photographers, what might be a tip or two um, before we, we let you get on with your evening? Believe in yourself. You know, believe in yourself. Uh, make sure that, that you're living your dream, not the dream someone else is trying to tell you. You know, um, sometimes uh, an English teacher, you know, in junior high or something will tell you you're not a very good writer or you need to do this or that. And that can really kill your your aspirations. And vice versa, sometimes you, if you have a teacher that believes in you and says, hey, you know, you could be a great writer. That's all you need. But sometimes you have to be your own coach and tell yourself that. I was lucky. I had a a professor in um, a speech writing class, actually, at Missouri, who told me I was a good writer. So that really helped. Um, but I would say, yeah, just kind of like what, what's in Bob's book. You know, you got to be your own your own coach and your own uh, your own motivational person. You got to motivate yourself sometimes. But don't let other people define you. You know, okay. if you think you're going to be a good writer and you really want to do it, go for it. I love that. Um my good friend and one of my mentors, um, he really encouraged me to do my Truman book for no money, which again, you mm -hmm. can probably <laughs> empathize can with that, right? Like if I told yep. you what the advance was, you'd probably be surprised and not in a good way. But anyway, um, it, it, I got the right for that great editor I mentioned who had the how subtitles always so, and learned a lot from him. So, and just the process itself was worth it. But uh, yeah, Professor Dean Nelson, who's the head of the journalism school at Point Loma Nazarene in in San Diego, where my wife went to college. And um, mm -hmm. he has a great little book on interviewing called Talk to Me. So again, a shameless plug um, to Dean, but I think that you've you've got at least one one book about writing and interviewing and editing in you. So I wish you would do that one. If I had one to say, man, like obviously your books with Bob are great and um, the others that you've done on the game of golf, but I think it would really serve um, mid-career writers like myself and then um many others that are a lot younger than me coming up in terms of the craft and how to approach it like a true craft not and to be a storyteller not a content copywriter or whatever they would call it these days a content specialist whatever that is yeah storytelling is is so important but also um you know there's a, that little book by strunk and white called strunk and white uh, the elements mm -hmm. of style yeah it was our Bible in journalism school. We used it all the time in um, Golf Digest as well. <clears throat> you know, it's it's full of lots of very, very insightful tidbits about how to make your writing succinct, not wordy. Um, you use the right word at the right time. You know, like you don't want to say um, in spite of when you mean despite. You know, mm. despite is a, has a different or meaning. Or composed versus comprised. And that kind exactly, of thing. <laughs> yeah. exactly. So, you know, those those rules are great to live by and they make you a better writer. No, I love that. Well, you, we still need yours. So don't don't try to shirk it now. Come on. <laughs> you have a duty to writers to do that. Seriously. I really well, I'll give it a thought. That's that's no one's ever asked me about that before. That's that's interesting. Maybe I'll no, I think that. you could because Dean, I mean, is one of the you know, a lot of journalism professors um, have walked the walk. Um, quite a few have not, but he's still contributing to San Diego Tribune and papers in Boston and New York and elsewhere. And so uh, 
just has a real passion for interviewing and probably fed up of answering the same questions from his students over and over. So why not write, talk to me, you know, about the craft of interviewing. So if he can, you know, he's a great, great writer and has written many books, but yeah, I think, I think you should do that. Really do. Okay. be Great. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Not like you don't have four or five other gems in there working away, right? Yeah, I got a couple of projects on the horizon here, but but maybe uh, maybe in a couple of years. Okay, that'd be can a you, good one. Can you share anything about upcoming projects or? Uh, I don't want to jinx them. Okay, that's fair. I don't, okay. but I do have a couple of really something very similar to the Nicholas book. Okay, so with another with another big architect, yeah, with another big architect, yeah. Okay, and. Um, and another, uh, actually, another sports psychology book with a different sports psychologist. Yeah. Thank you yeah, for all yeah. the work you do. I'm a, I'm a, you know, huge yeah. Golf Digest fan. I've been reading Golf Digest forever. It seems like, and and I've probably read thousands of of your pieces without even knowing some of them. You know, obviously, but yeah, yeah, um, a lot of them I don't get credit for. That's but, right. And uh, and but what a fantastic magazine, fantastic uh, arsenal of books that you have. And then some, you know, just incredible stories and a lot of great gems today for, for, you know, in terms of golf, in terms of life. So we, we appreciate you so much. Yeah, thank you. So well, much. I appreciate that, Jim. And I hope next time when we talk, maybe you can tell, tell me some of your stories too, because I know you've, you've worked with a lot of Olympic athletes and San Francisco giants and a lot of, you know, big name yeah. um, athletes. And uh, I would love to, to hear a lot more about that too. Yeah. So. Uh, I'll tell you a quick uh, Willie Mays story if that's okay oh my idol okay yeah so i would see him you know it's spring training every year and first time i went up to him uh uh you know he was kind of you know meeting and greeting people and and i said mr mays and he put out his hand and i shook his hand and i didn't want to be you know squeezed too tightly and so he said is that all you got and so i had to squeeze a little bit more but uh we started talking about the mental game and i asked him about visualization he said yeah we didn't call it that we didn't know what it was but i would play the whole game in my head uh, before every game and okay. he, he'd be sitting like in, you know, not, not a hot tub, but you know, a tub of, you know, hot water kind of getting ready for the game. And, uh, thinking and about who the pitching might be. Who, exactly. Who and then he winked at me and he said, I did it from every position on the field. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, goosebumps on that one, but, uh, yeah, it's fun talking shop. It's fun talking about the mental game and, and, and we're excited to interview, uh, your wife coming up and, and talk more about what she's up to. Great. Great. Sounds terrific. Well, now, Thanks, now we've got an ice bath story and a hot bath story. So that's, that's pretty, right. uh, that's pretty, <laughs> nice there's, some, there's there. some symmetry there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, have but, a good rest of your night, Roger. We really appreciate okay. it. Jim, thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me on the show. I appreciate it. Phil, nice to see you too. No, thank Take you, care. sir. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.